welcome to Femidish, where we have conversations about food through a feminist lens. We are elevating the stories of women by celebrating their unique ability to nourish themselves and their communities. My name is Sandy, and I'm here with my co-host today, Hope. Hi. Hey, Hope. And we are here with Sarah Gilbreth, a writer and food historian based in New York. And she is calling in from Atlanta today. Thanks so much for being with us today, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. Well, we're very excited to learn about all of your work through um, food history and um, all the stuff that you've been doing, and also particularly about some of the things you've learned about women through history when it comes to food. So do you want to give us and the listeners out there um, a bit of a a bit of a, your own history when it comes to your work and research and what you've been up to? Sure. Um, so like you said, I am primarily a writer, um, but my passion is food history, culinary history. Um, so I have an Instagram and a YouTube where I talk about um, different stories about food in the past. It could be any different time period. Um, my parents were both historians, which is how I kind of got into this. They were both really into food history when I was growing up. So we were members of local culinary history societies. My parents worked in museums um, or volunteered rather in some of the uh, museums and battlefields in the area. Uh, so it was always something that was pretty prevalent around the house. And then I just kept doing it. Um, so I worked an undergraduate. Um, I went to undergrad at Georgia Tech and I was the fellow in the science fiction lab where I focused on food and science fiction. Um, and then I won a Georgia Press Association award later on for a piece that I did about a diet book. Um, and since then I've been doing things like um, giving lectures on the history of cookies and even being a vegetable puppeteer in a Domino's commercial series. <laughs> Like you were the, you yeah. puppeted the vegetables? So I did, yeah. Um, so it was a series of three commercials for um, Domino's Mexicano pizza range. So they were all structured to be like telenovelas. And the characters were the ingredients from the pizza. So like actual vegetables and sausages. Um, and oh it gosh. was the weirdest job that I've ever been on. Um, but I was, I started off as the leading tomato and I must've done a really bad job because by the end of it, the third one, I was just a background eggplant. <laughs> oh, leading tomato, background eggplant. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag background eggplant. Um, and oh all my gosh. are, they were on YouTube. I probably, they probably still are. If you want to see the, um, Domino's Mexicano range, it was a, series that ran in London and I filmed in London. It was bizarre from start to finish. <laughs> I feel like those are very much moods. Like, you know what, today I'm feeling like a, what was it, a, a front front tomato or? Tomato, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, some days you just really feel like a background eggplant. I, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's really funny. It was. <laughs> Um, so you definitely mentioned that you were talking, like you've been interested in history because of your parents and stuff, but why particularly food history? So I think it is one of the most approachable aspects to history. I think too many people, when they think about history, they think of something that's kind of stodgy and old and they think of a textbook or like a dusty museum corner that's not necessarily particularly engaging. And all different aspects of social history, at least to me, 
are the easiest way to get people to experience what life might have been like at a certain time period. And because it's so essential, um, you find out a lot more about the people who were living and working in that time period than I think you would just from a regular textbook. Also, a lot of history classes tend to focus primarily on just wars and politics. You know, this mm -hmm. king fought this war and then was usurped by someone else who then took the crown. And it's not necessarily that engaging. It's not that interesting. And it leaves out the stories of 99% of the people because not that many people are kings and princes and generals. So for me, it's much more interesting to hear and talk about uh, the things that were more common experiences or day-to-day -day things that everybody shared. Now, what is, what is your favorite like period of history about food or is it more of like a type of food or? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I, I really love I love all time periods, but right now I'm particularly interested in some of the inventions that came about in the early 20th century. So I did my first master's degree in the history and science and technology, where I focused on food technology, like the microwave or like the dehydration process that NASA used in order to uh, process the food that went on early space flights. Um, so that really intrigues me because for thousands of years, the only real thing that you did with food, other than cut it up and stir it together, was cook it. That was the only chemical change that you did to it. But then in the late 19th to early 20th century, all of a sudden there are these other food processes that dramatically change what food is like. So if you look at something like a protein bar, if you took that back to the 1700s, the 1800s, a person back then wouldn't even necessarily recognize that as food because it's so different to anything that they have access to at the time period. And I don't want to make it seem like, you know, NASA is the only person that, or the only entity that's inventing these sorts of processes, specifically with the dehydration one. That in particular was based on an ancient practice, I believe it was from the Inca, um, where they would take potatoes very high up onto the mountaintops and smash them and then stomp on them with their feet to basically squeeze out the water. And then they would leave them on the mountaintops overnight. The water would evaporate and they would come back the next day and you would have this um, sort of like flaky dust, kind of like if you've ever bought a box of mashed potatoes where it's it's a mix yeah. and starts with that dust that you add water back into. That's essentially what they did. Um, so processes like that have certainly been around for thousands of years, but they don't really come to the forefront of, um, of what most people think about when they think about different ways to cook and prepare food. That, that's really neat about the different like forms of that food would take. I haven't really thought about that as being like a, um, like a significant change. That, mm -hmm. like you said for a while, you could only really only do one form of change to food, which was cook it by heating it up. But now like extracting proteins out of things like in a protein bar or, um, you know, like dehydrating it or you know, all, all these different things. Like you said, that's, um, you know, putting it in a microwave, even though it's heating it up, you're still like you're changing it in a, in a different chemical way. Right. Um, yeah, well, that's a, a, probably like some sort of food revolution, right? Like you have these different yeah. markers in time and things change. And you have to have the, the right technology to do all of these, A, 
when you want to and be where you want to. Because if you look at something like freezing, now if you are a culture that lives in an area that has access to ice, which you don't really think about nowadays as being an important commodity, but certainly used to be, um, you're going to be able to do things like freeze items to preserve them longer than you would if you lived in a more southern climate. Um, if you lived in one of those places, you were going to have to get your ice imported and being able to freeze food uh, for preservation or even to make different things like ice cream, that wouldn't be something that you would be able to do until comparatively more recently. Um, and it's really in, I mean, the end of the 19th century is when you start seeing this explosion of at-home food technologies for the home chef. Um, certainly some of these would have been around before, like they did have ice cream machines in the early colonial period. Um, Thomas Jefferson was obsessed with ice cream and wanted to bring back the technology for that. So he spent an unbelievable amount of money recreating um, an ice cream maker in America. Um, but even then, you know, it wasn't super common. When you get to the um, the late 1800s, then you start seeing things like um, hand-turned whisks or uh, special kinds of stoves that have different spots on the top of the range that are closer or further away to from the fire, which means that now you have a little bit of heat control. So you can cook things at different temperatures. Um, it's not necessarily something that we think of as being a big revolution today, but it really was. Wow. Now, when you say home chef um, and some of these gadgets and like things that were made for a home chef, uh, does that typically mean women? And if it does, how did some of these things really gear towards women working in the kitchen and what women's needs were? Uh, it almost always <laughs> was specifically designed for for women, for home cooks. Um, if you had a chef in a restaurant, that was still more commonly men, but at in home cooking for the family, yeah, that's usually women. Um, and a lot of these devices were things that were meant to make things a little easier and a little faster, which meant that now all of a sudden you can do more things. That's one of the reasons why in the Victorian era, you see this explosion of extravagant dinner parties that have so many courses and so many really intricate uh, dishes. And even things like we, we think of gelatins and aspics today. Now we think of that as being kind of either gross because you think of it from being the 1950s or uh, just a dessert that's meant to be a little bit extravagant. But actually that was a way of helping women to be frugal and stretch what they did have. So if you had just like a little bit of meat or a little bit of vegetables, you could put them in aspic, which is made from um, essentially animal parts that have been just boiled down. So it has protein in it. And that would be a more filling dish that could stretch your scraps further and feed more people with it. What is aspic for I'm not a cool home chef? I, I don't know. <laughs> aspic is, um, it's like a savory jello, basically. So if you, <sighs> you oh, no. <laughs> it's really gross. Uh, if you, that was the on. perfect reaction to savory jello. <laughs> yeah. Um, Yellow was, I mean, it was around in the 1800s. People always think of the 50s and 60s when you're thinking of jello, but it was a long, long before then. And if you've never heard the song Lime Jello Marshmallow Cottage Cheese Surprise, you absolutely should look it up because it's hilarious because um, it's making fun of this entire category of food. Oh, um, I feel like savory jello could also be a mood, like with background eggplant. <laughs> like today, I'm just feeling like a big bowl of savory jello. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, people, 
frequently had really salty ingredients in it, like olives. You seafood was a pretty common one, so you could have lobster or shrimp or tuna or whatever. There are all these different recipes um, that you can find from that entire time period that are pretty horrifying today. <laughs> but in that time period, they also used first of all, lots of different varieties of meat, like coming from different animals, and also different cuts of the same animal. Like today, if you go to the grocery store, you're pretty much only going to find chicken, pork, and beef, and probably turkey. Um, it is less common for most of America to even include things like duck. Whereas if you were going grocery shopping, let's say Chicago at the turn of the century, 1900, you would be able to find so many more meats and also so many more cuts of the meat. So it wouldn't just be, you know, a loin or a, a filet from a cow. You would also have the tongue or the calf's head, which is how they made things like mock turtle soup. Um, and so that's why a lot of these dishes now that you see culinary historians trying to recreate, it's actually really hard to know or to get something to taste exactly like it tasted for them because we don't have access to the same kinds of meats that they did. That's so. I once read a recipe that it was a really old, um, you know, out of like a super old cookbook that called for winter eggs and summer eggs. And that was for the idea for like baking and other things that different eggs at different times of the year will have a different yolk to white ratio because they're trying to like protect the, the yolk and, you know, protect the little potential baby chick. And so if you're making something that could benefit from more whites or more yolk, then you would want a winter egg or a summer egg. That is fascinating. I haven't come across that one yet, but, um, but I'm going to look that up. And eggs in particular are one of the things that have changed dramatically over time. First of all, because the eggs have gotten a lot larger. So if you're looking at a recipe from, you know, the 1700s that calls for three eggs, maybe you only need to use one and a half. Maybe you only need one. That's one of the reasons why uh, people now are recommending weighing the eggs first and going on a basis of what egg weight you're looking for, not necessarily number of eggs. Um, and also uh, egg temperature, because in this country nowadays, most of the time we refrigerate our eggs, but especially in Europe, that was not a typical practice. So if you're trying to do something like um, whip a meringue, which use whipped egg whites, um, or, or make macaron, anything that uses whipped egg whites to get the, the height and the texture out of it, it's going to be a lot easier if you set your eggs out a couple hours in advance and make them room temperature because cold eggs do not whip up the same way. And if you recreate that's an amazing tip, sorry, that's an amazing tip. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a trained chef and I had no idea that my eggs needed to be a certain temperature or should be a certain temperature. So here's a faster uh, workaround. If you forget to put your eggs out ahead of time, another thing that you can do is you can just take a glass and fill it with um, warm water, not hot, but just warm and just leave the eggs in the glass for like a couple of minutes and they'll warm up and then they'll whip up so much faster. Yeah. I, I remember that with bartending that you, if you want to juice the lemons or the limes or the citrus, you would leave them out too. That, a you know, a warmer, a warmer one will, the juice will come out easier. So that actually makes sense with the eggs that they'll be easy. They're like more malleable once they're warmed up. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing that helped with, um, specifically with egg white whipping was the metal that your pot was made out of. Um, if you whip egg whites in a copper pot, 
it will whip up a lot faster than in, say, a metal pot or a plastic pot or whatever it was it is that you would use today. Now, there is a little bit of a danger because if you're eating out of copper every single day, that's not going to be good for you. Um, but if you do it once in a while, just like as part of a demonstration or something, then it's fine. And it, it is amazing how much faster those dishes will come together. Wow. I could just have a whole episode on old wives tales like this, like just, you know, different um, temperatures and what kind of metal to use. I mean, just the like old timey knowledge and stuff. I would just have a whole episode talking about those funky old things. I mean, I think it would be great. I One of the things that I haven't done yet, but I really want to, is try to cook with historic utensils. Because, I mean, whisks are not that old. And so you look at trying to mix things together. You think, how do they do this? How do they mix the batter? Well, honestly, a lot of the time, if it's something like cake batter, they use their hands. They didn't use spoons. Spoons were used pretty much only for soup, if you're looking back to even the medieval period. And they didn't use forks because those were more of a of a serving and eating utensil. You didn't really cook with those. You just, you just had your hands in the pot, mixing it up, feeling all of the ingredients. And that brings ingredients together in an entirely different way. And also your hand is warm. So if you're working with something like butter, that's going to melt the butter faster and bring your uh, dough or your batter together um, in a, in a different way than using say a cold metal utensil would. Now, I wanted to go back to the list of um, kind of modern inventions that you were talking about. And there's one in particular that just really jumped out to me as like just saving grace for um, home cooks, for women cooking for their families. And it's the microwave. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the microwave, I, my understanding of it is when it was invented, it just basically cut dinner time in half because it was like right around the same time that there was like a lot of canned foods and TV dinners then came out after that. Um, and it just, it seems like not that I have the numbers or the facts on this, that it really would have freed up women like just from the labor of dinner. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, so it's, it's interesting at the same time that you're getting, uh, TV dinners, which by the way, were largely because of surplus food left over from, Um, previous events. In some cases, it was left over from World War II. In some cases, it was uh, a turkey company who had leftover turkey after Thanksgiving. So they cut all of their ingredients up into small portions, packaged them up kind of like you would with army rations with a little bit of each dish and sent them out um, so that housewives could buy them and cook them really quickly. At the same time you had that, you also had um, something that is sometimes referred to as TV menus, which are the early restaurants who figured out that, hey, women don't want to cook every night. We can start doing to-go food and cater towards these people who now in the late 40s and early 50s are starting to eat dinner in front of their televisions every night. And if you had a, a television menu, which was basically what we would think of now as a to-go menu, those restaurants saw a, a pretty significant spike in their business early on um, because women didn't want to have to cook every night and they would say, oh, thank God, here's something else, that somebody that will do it for me, even just once. Wow. And then uh, can you talk about any, like, if, you know, any, like, cultural shifts after that? Like, I, I can think of things like diet that might have changed or home dynamics that might have changed. Can you speak to anything like that once that shift started to happen? Uh, the 
diet specifically having to do with um, with the microwave, I mean, people were eating more frozen food and more processed food, um, but that is not something that I would say made the biggest difference right away. I think the processed foods that were about coming out at about the same time probably would have made a bigger difference in the diet. So, um, and a lot of these processed foods got their start in uh, World War II. Like, for example, the uh, the orange dust on Cheetos that comes off on your fingers, that got its start as a dehydrated army cheese. Um, so the oh. army, you don't really think of it, but they are kind of, inadvertently, a really big food pioneer because they have to... They have to provide food from, for all of their soldiers in all these different climates. And so during World War II especially, they commissioned a lot of um, different food companies to try to develop things that were uh, high calorie, low weight, which is why the water was taken out, um, and wouldn't melt in the different hot climates that people were going in, like the, uh, the Pacific Theater uh, of World War II. Um, Hershey had a really famous contract to, pr to produce a deliberately bad tasting chocolate bar um, that wouldn't melt. This is one of the reasons, one of the things that eventually led to M&Ms and the, the dust on those products, the cheese that is used in a lot of different snack foods um, got its start in that time period. Um, so that made a huge difference in the way that all Americans were eating because all of a sudden there are snack foods that you're buying and bringing home, not necessarily things that are, you know, home cooked with love, but the cool stuff that kids are seeing like Doritos, you know, those are things that you buy instead of make. So that has a big impact on the way we look at the food that was made at home versus the way we look at the food that you purchase outside. Wow. And how that just like totally um, would impact women too in their like, if they, like Hope was saying, don't have to spend as much time cooking and what that does for their own free time and freeing up their labor. Have, have you ever seen a time in any of your historical research where women aren't the main home chefs, women aren't the main cooks? Maybe even I'm thinking like higher classes of women. Like, is there a, is there a group, like we just, we associate women so much with the kitchen and so much with the, with food. And that's really what we're here at Feminish to do is to talk about those like mm -hmm. very cool intersections. Um, and because, you know, we, we do see it so common. Uh, is there anything you could speak to that like were, that were, that wasn't the forefront of a women's day or life or job? Um, so food that's not specifically at the forefront of women's jobs. Um, so if you were rich enough, the women usually wouldn't cook in the house. They would have servants to do it for them. Um, but if you want to talk specifically about other women in food history, I have lots of stories like at the ready. Like one of my favorite women yes. in history to talk about is Ruth Graves Wakefield. Now, do you guys know who she is just off the top of your heads by any chance? I do not. Yeah, and nobody no. does. She doesn't have the name recognition, which is a shame because when I tell you her greatest invention, I'm guarantee you you're going to know it she is the chef that invented chocolate chip cookies and oh, this what? Day, how do we not know her yeah exactly no she 
people don't know who she is. And to this day, there's this myth that is perpetuated that those cookies were invented by accident. And Nestle Toll House themselves have been a big force in perpetuating that myth and saying, you know, she was trying to create, to make a different cookie, but she ran out of the ingredients. And so she chopped up some chocolate really fine, thinking that it was going to melt into the batter and create a delicious, completely chocolate cookie. And then whoops, invented this by mistake. That is completely false. So Ruth's Graves Wakefield is an amazing, amazing woman who was incredibly smart and incredibly well-educated for that time period. She had a university degree in 1924, which is very rare. Um, she was a home economics teacher. She worked as a nutritionist in a hospital, um, and she was a published cookbook author already. So she was well-known and well-respected for for doing what she does, for being a chef. Um, and the invention of the cookies came about after she and her husband bought a house that sat on a toll road, which they then called the Toll House Inn. Um, no way. That's where that's the name <laughs> of it comes from. Um, and she was already famous for a lot of her recipes, but particularly her desserts. She was known to be really good with pastry and desserts. And her uh, her best known cookie was a, a kind of a, a butter drop cookie, sometimes called butter drop dew. It's like a, a thin... Um, butterscotch nut cookie and they would serve this with ice cream um, and her customers loved it but she was always looking for a different take on it or like something new that she could give them and so chocolate was one of the ingredients that she'd worked with before so of course she already knew the melting properties for it there's no way that she wouldn't have having worked as a chef for several decades or at over a decade at that point so she cut up the chocolate chips um, or a bar of chocolate into what we would today call chips, um, mixed that into the dough and created this cookie instead and served that at the Toll House and people loved it. So, and fun fact, chocolate chip cookies predate chocolate chips. She's the one who invented that because she was the one that was chopping up the chocolate into small morsels that were big enough that they would not melt, but small enough that they would still be soft when you ate it. Uh, Nestle didn't figure out that that was a marketable thing until after these cookies had already been successful. So they, wow. yeah, they started making chocolate chips based on that and they bought her recipe. They bought the Toll House chocolate crunch cookie as it was then called they purchased that recipe um and she has later said that they didn't even end up paying her the full amount that they agreed to and if you're wondering of course not of course of course not and you know she was already kind of a food celebrity you know she judged food contests in the area um so she was big in, in Maine and a little bit in eastern Massachusetts, um, and, and they would call her in to do things like uh, the Great Clam Chowder War of, of the 1930s. I don't know if you've heard this, but um, a senator jokingly tried to make, um, make it illegal to make uh, clam chowder with tomatoes. And it was sort of this war of like oh. Manhattan clam chowder versus New England clam chowder. And they had Ruth Graves Wakefield come be a celebrity guest judge at this contest. So she was already known for cooking. Um, and if you're wondering how we could possibly know all of these details about, you know, how did she serve the butter drop dew cookies? How do, how do we know she served those with ice cream? The answer is she's done a bunch of interviews about this. She has talked about the fact that this was not an accident. This was not just the happy housewife that got lucky. You know, this was 
an educated chef who figured out something that would work and was successful about it. She did interviews on this topic well into the 1970s and it's out there, but because that's not the story that Nestle is putting out, that's not what people know. That, I mean, it really, that's very emblematic of so many women, like famous women and uh, inventions that they've made or con- contributions that they've had. Um, I mean, it's really unfortunate, but it's, it's such, it's such a common tale. What, what, and where is she from again? She was from Maine. Um, what? That's where Hope and I are right now is in Maine. Yeah. Um, so well, Maine invented the chocolate. Maine and Massachusetts. So she lived and worked in, uh, in both of those places. Um, it's, I'm not sure exactly where the toll house was. It's somewhere near Boston and between Boston and New Bedford, but I don't know the exact location. I do know. Okay. So it's the, in Massachusetts. The original toll house itself did burn down in the eighties. So unfortunately you can't go visit it anymore. Um, but she did a lot of work in, in, um, several of the new England States. So mainly you're going to see her being mentioned in Maine and Massachusetts. And what is her name? One more time. Ruth Graves Wakefield. Ruth Graves Wakefield, shout out to her. Everyone listening, pour one out tonight for Ruth Graves Wakefield. And and if you're looking for more information on her, uh, the New York Times, uh, relatively recently, they were doing this series of obituaries that are belated of people who are often overlooked. Um, And they did one about her, um, which was really interesting. And I thought, okay, here we go. More people are going to know the real story. And nope, (laughs) it didn't happen. Um, thanks to uh, my friend Google over here, the original Toll House Inn was in Whitman, Massachusetts. All right. Darn it, I really thought we'd get one over on Massachusetts up here in Maine. Mm. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I'm originally from Massachusetts, so I'm going to take this one. <laughs> uh, Sarah, I love that story. Keep them coming. Give us another lady food, uh, lady in food history that we need to know about. Ooh. Who else? Okay, okay. Um, so, all right. So since that one was like a little bit depressing of somebody not getting their due, uh, let's do, let's do one that's a little bit happier. So, um, in the 1890s, Vassar College was exclusively a female school. Uh, it went co-ed in the sixties, I believe 1969. Um, but at the time it was only women and they, in the 1890s became famous for holding illicit midnight fudge parties in their dorm rooms. <laughs> so, um, the, my kind of college. yeah, right. Like that's, that's everything that I want from a school. Um, all of the, the women who were, uh, taking classes there, they all had a curfew. They were supposed to be in their dorms, but being college students, they did what we all did and they snuck out to each other's dorm rooms. And, um, originally they would cook a number of different foods. Like they would cook, um, oysters, which they roasted on, on hat pins. They would stick the hat pins onto the the end of the oyster and roast them over the only source of open flame that they could have in their dorms, which was the lamps, the, the gas lamps that were mounted sometimes on the ceiling and sometimes on the walls. You would stand on a chair and hold it over those. And then, um, a woman named, Emmeline, and that's Emmeline with an M, not Evelyn with a V, Emmeline Battersby Hartridge introduced her fellow students to fudge in 1888. Uh, I want to point out that um, she did not invent this recipe. This came to her through um, 
I, I think it was like her cousin who sent it to her, but I don't think the cousin invented it either. This was just a recipe that had been circulating. But Emmeline was the one who started to promote it. And so she and her classmates in her dorm would start making fudge over these lamps. And by the 1890s, this was such a prominent thing that it had become tied not just to Vassar students, but that food, fudge, had kind of become symbolic in some circles of women's education. Wow. So I'm still on Google and I, I was looking up the story and you're totally right because it's it's saying here that it spread as a women's college fad mm-hmm. to include other schools like Smith College, which is in Massachusetts and traditionally female as well. <laughs> and each university developed their own recipe and it's saying here that um, Smith College used molasses in their recipe. Yeah. Yeah, and and I would say though, like they they say that each college had its own recipe. Personally, I think each individual students group of students would probably have had their own um, because you know you're gonna go in and say, oh hey, what happens if we like tip nuts in it or whatever? You know, everybody's gonna experiment with it a little bit. Um, but if you look hard enough, you can also find some illustrations, like some sketches that ran in local papers of these ladies with you know their hair down in the Victorian nightwear. Um, up on chairs with the pots over top of these lamps that are on the walls and the ceiling to try to cook it. Um, so I, I definitely recommend yeah. you look those up because they're interesting images. I love the like idea of, uh, you know, like the necessity is the mother of invention, right? So like if you have this lamp and the, you know, these like little small source of heat, what does, what then does that begat? Like the, you know, this, <laughs> You only have what? a certain, right. I just, I think that's so neat when you think about like, okay, it's, it's not because people were like, Ooh, let's make fudge. And that sounds great. It only came, okay, well, what can we make from this very specific heat source that we have, you know, and, and that's where it came from. So it's, it's, we start to really like dig into some of the stuff. It was never just because, Oh, that sounds fun. It's really just about of these, like this came out of necessity. Right. And it's, it's funny because it was sort of their way of being, a little bit rebellious like there was something a little bit naughty about it about saying like okay it's midnight you know we're supposed to be in bed there are chaperones that won't let us go outside so we're going to sneak into somebody else's room and just have a party making chocolate like that's that's such a fun way of you know being a little bit rebellious um and a little bit independent especially in a time period where women were just starting to figure out their independence on a social level you know and they definitely get that but there is a part of me that kind of wishes they were like having like, you know, midnight fight clubs or something. Like if, <laughs> I kind of wishes they were doing something a little more like non-traditionally female than like chocolate parties. <laughs> totally well, get it. And now like, we feel more rebellious when we have chocolate parties. That's true. We'll have some like, you know, you know whiskey. And... It's like, no, this is our midnight fudge party. This is incredibly rebellious. <laughs> I to say, like, I think all of the women that, that in this time period, I think they were incredibly brave because in the 1890s, being allowed to go to any kind of higher education, educational institution as a woman had only just become legal. So the fact that they were in, at this point, what, maybe the second or third generation where it was even legally possible and they were still facing lots of ridicule everywhere they went just for trying to get an education. I mean, to me, that's incredible. And I have so much respect for them. 
Right, and the risk of that, like the consequences, were right. not not just like, "Hey, girls, go back to your room." Like it very well could have been a lot more dire for them if they had gotten caught, and the ridicule that they face once they get out of college too, and trying to get a job and any of that stuff. I mean, you're you're totally totally right, and that's that's pretty incredible that among on all of this other stuff, they had the the um, the bravado to go and do something very cool like that. Yeah. Um, and there, they even, uh, there were some poems that ran in, um, I think it was like a, a, a local newspaper. It wasn't a, a major one. Um, but this one I found online, this is from, uh, 1893 paper. Um, it was one of the students that had written this and submitted it. What purchase us upon a chair to stir a saucepan held in air, which tipping pours upon our hair fudges. Because sometimes when you're holding the pen aloft, they would drop it or it would tip, and then you would get molten chocolate in your hair. Oh my gosh! <laughs> it happened. Yeah. It happened. How would you explain that one at two in the morning when you're washing your hair? Like, oh no, it's nothing. It's fine. <laughs> and and melting chocolate is hot. Like you can really scald yourself with that. Oh I have to say, I was impressed with the ingenuity. You said they were roasting oysters on hat pins yes. <laughs> over their, their kerosene lamps. We uh, recently did an interview with an oyster farmer, and we were discussing the different ways that you could prepare oysters aside from just eating them raw on the half shell, which is kind of what everyone thinks of. And I have to say, roasting them over a kerosene lamp with a hat pin. <laughs> I mean, you really haven't experienced the full oyster effect until you've done that. I mean... <laughs> I'm going to try that one next time. There's there's a restaurant. Talk about a niche restaurant right there. Yeah. <laughs> Fudge over lamps and um, oysters over with hat pins. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sarah, talking about um, education and college and stuff, switching gears for just a, a minute, um, you personally, coming up right up to the present day, um, you were the first female graduate of the Georgia Tech Honors Program. I was. Absolutely. What was that? What was that like for you being the first female? You must have been just, you know, only female maybe in your class or what was so, that like for you being the first female? So I was part of the inaugural class. So I started college in uh, fall of 2006 um, and there were, oh, I think maybe 50 of us in that program. Um, and it was it was heavily male. Um, so Georgia Tech at that time, I think was about 70% male, 30% female, um, somewhere in that neighborhood. And I really wanted to be the first person to graduate. Like going into it, I was like, this is my goal of this program. And I was trying to make documentaries about it. I filmed interviews with all of the students all the way through. And then unfortunately my computer crashed and I lost all of it, but I know, no. Oh, it was heartbreaking. I was so upset. Um, but uh, I So I graduated a year early because I wanted to make sure I was the first. I graduated in 2009, and there were two other people um, that graduated at the same time as me, but they were both men. Um, so one of the first graduates, the first female graduate. Um, and at that time, so when we started, they had one small dorm building that was three floors that was just for the honors program. And they had the, the male students on the first floor and the third floor and all the female students in the middle. Um, and yeah, I mean, we were, for the most part, we were a pretty tight knit group. I mean, my best friends for life all came out of that program. I'm still really good friends with a lot of them. So I'm very grateful to that program. It was very well put together. 
That's great. Did you find anything unique in your experience of being a female with among all male colleagues or, and being the first of that? Was there any, was that, did that feel extra special to you? Did that feel, um, you know, maybe did the, the female part, how did that play into it? So I kind of expected that um, there would be more to it, to be honest. Um, I was like, surely I'm going to get like a plaque or something, right? Um, but instead, I think the administration was kind of caught by surprise because they all thought that we were going to take a minimum of four years and maybe five because Georgia Tech has a, a very good co-op program in which you do a semester of school and then a semester of um, work if you were in the right majors. My major, that wasn't an option, um, but it means that a lot of people typically graduate in five years. So for them to have three people that were a year early, um, I don't <laughs> think they necessarily expected that. So we had, they did give us a little bit of a little ceremony um, where they talked about each of us, which was nice. Um, but it wasn't as big a thing as I was expecting, to be honest. Um, and they never, I never felt from that program that I was in any way different or lesser than because I was female. Um, I did get a little bit of, I want to say pushback because of the major that I was in. So I, my major was called science, technology, and culture, which was supposed to be about, um, communicating science and communicating, uh, different technological things. Um, and you know, I had a professor tell me to my face that my major and everybody in it was a shame to the university. So, Whoa. yeah, and of course, because it was a, a less technical degree and more about communication, um, it was a more female-dominated major than some of the other ones. Um, my, my best friend was a management major, um, which she was doing because she wanted to be a lawyer. Um, so it was like she was using it as like a pre-law program. And they got even more flack than we did because that program was a lot of women and a lot of football players. So people kept saying, you know, you guys must not be – as intelligent as the rest of us. And we're like, look at our SAT scores. We got into this same as you did. And we got into the honors program. So we're not idiots, but you know, people are going to say what they're going to say. Were there other similar programs, like other communications heavy programs that also maybe got the same stigma? Uh, that was the only one at Georgia Tech. So um, oh, wow. previously, Georgia Tech was almost exclusively a science and engineering program. So when I started, I was maybe only the 12th student in that program. It was very new. Um, and it, it was part of this push to add more majors and give the college a little bit of a more well-rounded experience. And I, I will say that that major no longer exists, as far as I know. They've changed it, and the college now exists, and they... They offer degrees that are similar, but they tweaked them, which I actually really like because it means that the university is looking at things that work and don't work. And they're saying, okay, what is helping our graduates get jobs? What is not? Okay, maybe this program wasn't the best. We're going to retool this, call it something else and change it a little bit. Um, and so my college experience was a little bit in that experimental stage. They didn't necessarily know what they were going to be doing with it. And I don't know how many years my major had been around, um, not many, maybe less than four by the time I started. I'm not sure about that. Wow. That's, that's a lot of pioneering in one degree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it, 
It was an interesting experience. Um, and I was glad that I had um, the friends that I did. And I also worked at the the television station on campus. Um, so I was a TV host at our local network. And that was a good outlet for me. Um, so I was very glad to have that. And I mean, it also was great for my career because if I hadn't had that, there's no way I would have been a vegetable puppeteer. And that's clearly the <laughs> <laughs> And that's that's why we brought you on. We yeah, were like, listen, I, I know she has. You saw my excellent all these number work, and you were like, "We have to speak to her." I mean, immediately. We're like, "This girl has no background eggplant. She is a hundred percent first tomato." <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> so, Sarah, do you have uh, one more woman in history to share with us? Ooh. Or all right, uh, you want to talk about Cleopatra? Oh, yes. Yeah. I just actually pulled out this obnoxiously, it's probably like two and a half, three inches thick, like the memoir of Cleopatra. And that's my new quarantine book. Ooh. <laughs> that, that, so I'm, give it to me because uh, that's where I'm headed. All right. All right. Um, so this is just one quick fact. Like, I, I don't know if I would necessarily call her a foodie, um, but she was definitely a scientist, um, definitely extremely well educated. Um, some people say that she spoke up to seven languages. So um, huge polyglot, incredibly intelligent woman. And also very self-confident, very self-assured, and a show-off. So there has long been a rumor that she drank a crushed pearl, essentially just to flex on Mark Antony. And uh, for hundreds <laughs> of years, scholars dismissed that. They were like, you can't drink a crushed pearl. Uh, it, it doesn't work. Um, they, the story recorded by Pliny the Elder was that... Um, she and Mark Antony had placed a bet to see who could spend a, the most on a single meal. Uh, and Cleopatra said, I bet I can spend 10 million sesterces, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, on one meal. And he said, all right, prove it. Money where your mouth is. I don't think you can do that. So the first course was standard. But in the second course, her servants just brought out one thing. And it was a goblet full of vinegar, probably white vinegar, but we're not positive about that. She took off her earring, dropped it in the drink, waited until the pearl dissolved, and then drank it straight. That was oh my gosh. that uh, was propagated. Um, and, and so many historians said, oh no, you can't possibly dissolve a pearl in that. However, a New Jersey scholar by the name of Prudence Jones conducted a number of experiments. Um, and she specifically used white vinegar for this. Um, and she found that you can take a five carat pearl and if you leave it in vinegar for between 24 to 36 hours, it will completely dissolve and you can drink it. The calcium carbonate in the pearl essentially neutralizes some of the acid in the vinegar, meaning it'll taste a little bit better, and the carbon dioxide will make it slightly fizzy, a little bit like an early version of champagne, because champagne hadn't been invented yet. Um, and the later experiments found that if you crush uh, the pearl and or boil the vinegar, you can get this process down to about 10 minutes, which means it is in, it is completely possible that she prepped the pearl, boiled the vinegar, and then just to show off, because that's the kind of person she was, dropped the pearl in and just stared at him for 10 minutes and then did it in the <laughs> And that's the version I'm going with because that's amazing. Yeah, it's, I mean, and we had 
records of that happening. It's just that modern day scholars said, well, even though we have this historical record, we're going to say now that it's probably not true. Whenever that happens, always take a second look at it because there's probably something that you're missing. If you have a reliable source telling you that something happened, instead of just immediately dismissing it, you should always say, well, is there a way that it could have? Is there, is there a way that people aren't lying? Um, and we see this in like art history of people talking about the foot placement of people and, oh, I'm sure they didn't really stand like this. Well, yes, they did because shoes were different then. Anyway, so it's <laughs> like she really did do this just to flex on him, just to win a bet. That absolutely seems like any cinema, cinema or anything I've seen about Cleopatra, that absolutely seems like something that she would do. Yeah. And that's the Cleopatra version I have in my head. Yeah. Hope, hope you'll have to report back and see if that's the, um, if that's what you also gleaned from your book. Yeah. So I've owned this book for years. I've like moved across country with this book because it is so intimidatingly large. Yeah. So, <laughs> I figured out time like the present when I have nothing else to do. Personally, <laughs> I can't believe that there isn't some. I mean, I mean, maybe not now with the quarantine, but that there wasn't some bar in New York that was doing pearl shots because you know, <laughs> like people would pay a ton of money, even if it's just a really tiny pearl, like crush it up and drink it and say, "Oh, we we did the the pearl shot like Cleopatra." I bet you anything, people would do that. Oh. oh, totally. And isn't that what, like, gold slogger is? Is, like, alcohol with gold flakes in it or something? Oh. It's a very similar... I don't, I don't know if they're real gold flakes. I mean, maybe they yeah. are, but... Yeah, it's... So, I'm, I love Google, and <laughs> I'm back on it. It says, uh, it's a Swiss cinnamon schnapps. Um, very thin, visible flakes of gold floating in it. Oh, the actual amount of gold has been measured at approximately 13 milligrams in a one liter bottle. I think we have our business idea. So we're going to have pearl shots where you drink a dissolved <laughs> pearl. Um, you have fudge that's made by lamplight and we're eating oysters <laughs> off hairpins. There you go. <laughs> this is the coolest restaurant I've ever been to. And we'll call it like Cleopatra's college or something. <laughs> Cleopatra's dorm. <laughs> <laughs> there we go cleopatra's midnight dorm room <laughs> you see mark antony try to sneak in, in the corner <laughs> yeah no mark antony's allowed only caesar's only or is it no caesar's allowed mark antony's only i don't know which one <laughs> so we've talked a lot about other women historically um and different technology that's impacted women but what are you up to, Sarah? Do you have any like upcoming projects? I know you're a writer. Are you working on anything you want to talk about? Oh, man, I have. So I had this show that I was really trying to put on um, in a bar. I don't know if I necessarily want to promote this out right now, but um, it got kind of put on hold because of the virus. So mm. right now I don't have anything big uh, in the works. I have a lot of things that I would love to talk about, but because they're not to that stage yet. I don't want to put it out there because I don't want other people to take it before I can point, <laughs> unfortunately. Totally understandable. Um, I, I do have my Instagram and my YouTube channel where I talk about all of this kind of stuff. So if you are interested in the kind of facts that you heard today, go to Instagram.com slash eat the past. I try really hard to make content that's uh, short and catchy and easy to remember. A lot of people have compared it kind of like to Snapple facts just because it's usually one sentence that has a fact that stands out. Um, so it'll be maybe a little bit more intriguing and a little bit more engaging than your average textbook. 
And on YouTube, is it also Eat the Past? Yeah, and it link, there's a link to it in my um, Instagram channel. And also I post um, most of my videos in the same place. I'm rolling over most of my videos. So you can go to the IGTV tab on my Instagram and view um, the most recent ones there. That's great. Well, we would love to know just, you know, finally from all of your research and your you know, your thoughts and desire to um, look in, look into food and um, learn about all these women and things over time. What do you see as like the role of women when it comes to food? You know, have, do you, can you talk about women expressing feminism through food or, you know, what, what do you see from all this as the connection between women and food? I mean, I definitely think that going forward, we're going to see a lot of really great innovations from women that we haven't seen before. I mean, already, if you look at, I'm going to mispronounce her name horribly, but um, Dinah Co. I, I don't, I'm just going to call her Dinah K. But um, she is a great innovator and pastry chef who has made a living uh, crafting these 3D printed dessert molds that look like other things. They look like they defy gravity. You know, that's an incredible thing. Um, and I can send you the link to this later if you want to link to it. Um, but those kinds of innovations, um, I think we're seeing a lot more women that are starting to uh, tell their stories or share the stories of other people in their in their families. Like um, if you're in the New York area, the Museum of Food and Drink is fantastic for this. Um, their upcoming exhibit, which has obviously been delayed for right now, but is going to be opening in the summer whenever life comes back to normal, is uh, called African American. And it's about black people and, and largely black women and how they have shaped uh, the culinary traditions of America. It's the first exhibit of its kind like this ever. Um, so it's a huge deal. So if you're interested in food history, definitely check them out. And also they're MoFad on, um, on Instagram. They're a fantastic resource. Um, and I think that we're starting to see more women becoming scholars into the history of food as well as the future of it. So I think there's a lot of really great stuff happening right now and a lot of great people who are really pushing the boundaries um, with the things that we can do with it. Is the woman you were mentioning before, is it Dianara Casco? Yep, that's it. Okay, that's so is Dianara Casco with the dessert molds. And can you say one more time the um, they're the people that are doing the exhibit um, with the women in um, African-American history? Yeah, um, so it's it's all African-American history. They're, they're, they do have a lot of women in it, but that's not the only focus. Um, so they are the Museum of Food and Drink, or MOFAD, okay. M-O-F-A-D, um, and all of their marketing online. So they're awesome. fantastic. Absolutely check them out. Those are really incredible resources. Thank you for that. And thank you for all this awesome information and talking with us. This is so interesting. And I really just want to keep learning about like old timey ways that people cooked things. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, for me, it is the most interesting topic to talk about. So I can talk about this all day. So thank you guys for having me on. This was really fun. So thank you, Sandy, as always. And thank you, Sarah, for joining us. This has been Femidish, where we explore the intersections of food and feminism through the conversations with other people. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and on our website, www.femidish.com.
I was hanging out the towels. We were trying to save the world. I was picking up the house. Why don't you put it down? Come over. Come over.